Welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found what they were passionate about, created something special, and most of all, they gave themselves permission to go and do it. The genesis of this podcast is the inspirational lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place advisors come to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we have Amy Hart Klein with us. Amy is the Chief Knowledge and Learning Officer at Pitcairn, a family office with offices in Philadelphia, New York, and D.C. Now that's interesting in its own right, but what's better is Amy just authored and launched a book called Finding Her Voice and Creating a Legacy, in which she interviewed a large number of ultra-wealthy women about their journeys to and managing wealth. It's a great and enlightening read, trust me. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Doug. I'm delighted to be here. What motivated you to take this project, find people, and write a book about it? Wow. Okay, so that is three questions. I'm going to tackle the first, which is what motivated me to write this book. And I think there was three things that um, specifically led me to my curiosity um, which is one of the core values of my firm at Pitcairn is curiosity. Um, there were three sort of motivating factors that, you know, that really drew me to this project. You know, I've been, I've spent my career in this space. Um, I've been in it for over 25 years working with ultra wealthy families. I have considered it a high honor and privilege to be uh, a partner and coach and advocate um, to these families, so many of whom have done wonderful things for our, for our country. And I think that throughout the last couple of decades, I found it very troubling to me that while women in our country, for sure, really around the globe, have these extraordinary you know positions of leadership and you know, business or, or, you know, governance, uh, government or sort of other, other entrepreneurial enterprise related activities. Um, I found with all of that good stuff, um, I found um, on the other side of that, for the women in these families themselves, that they were really hindered by longstanding conventions and sort of traditional roles. And I didn't understand that, you know, it, it wasn't making sense to me that in one way there was this enormous progress and then the other there was, we, we were standing still. I think the second thing that motivated me to do this project um, was that I, three years ago, um, was privileged enough to join a really fine firm called Pitcairn on, on my first interview with the CEO of, of Pitcairn. Her name is Leslie Both. She's the first non-family female CEO in a hundred-year-old business, and that was really appealing to me. I thought that told me something about the culture of the firm. 
And, you know, we just had a great chat about, you know, providing service and support to women of wealth and how they needed something different than men. And how 25 years ago, that was Leslie Strain was to get that rolling. And just coincidentally, this year, the year this book has gone out, it's our the 25th anniversary of that initial women's forum. But I, I found that sort of culturally interesting to me. Um, and then I think third and last was that um, I have, over the course of my career, presented and worked with countless wealthy women um, I've I've led I've designed you know over 500 learning experiences and I always recall especially in the last few years sort of standing in front of this like a sea of faces in the audience and there weren't a lot of women there but there were enough and I remember sort of locking eyes with them and really wondering what was going on in their head when I talked about things that were sort of not necessarily um, topics that were sort of fluid and comfortable to women, and that is around finances. And, you know, I, what really bothered me was that um, I heard their silence. And that, that silence I wanted to address because my hypothesis in this project was that what was really extraordinary and what contributed to multi-generational wealth transfer was a wonderful matriarch and that she was the secret sauce that actually did indeed come out in the research. There's a line in your book, in 2019, there were 11 self-made female billionaires worldwide. A year later, there was a hundred. You know, that's staggering. And I know the book is so much more about that. But who are today's women of wealth? And I, I, th I think you break it into two groups. I do take it, uh, break it into two groups. And that's just a wonderful question and insight because that, again, was something that I did not, I, I did not anticipate, although I was cognizant of sort of differences, but I didn't anticipate our good fortune in um, the, our, our sample. So the two groups, um, and they divided almost equally of the 40. Um, we had half who were new to wealth. And by new to wealth, I mean women who were either a co-founder, a, a business partner right from the get-go, or a woman who married in to a wealthy family. So thus, they were new to sort of all the trappings of wealth. The second group were um, inheritors. Um, and these were women who inherited wealth um, and that sort of came, they were down the line um, as successors who moved into family leadership roles. These groups are, are very different to me. How were these women able to step successfully into roles that they maybe weren't qualified for, but I think in every case that I read, they were, they were successful. Yeah. And I think, you know, it wasn't, they are very different, the two, um, the two groups, um, but there were common themes that were, that really sort of uh, reached across whether or not you were sort of new, new or, or inheritors. And, you know, what, um, Success 
meant different things to them. It was not, success did not always mean financial. In fact, it often did not mean financial. And um, how, how their family was able to sort of navigate um, all of the wealth. I think, you know, there were, there were a few themes that I think were relevant as, you, as, they, as we sort of think about their success. Um, one really related to their intense willingness to be um, connectors, to be bridge builders. And that was incredibly ambitious. And it often resulted in creating some kind of thread if you will, between the source of wealth, some business and the family and really sort of concentrate on, on others. But they really felt that, that the wealth was there to be shared and used wisely. And I think that was one um, common success descriptor, if you will, of these, these women who were able to you know, as I said in the book title, to, to find their voice in a way that was uniquely their own. Extreme wealth is actually a job. You don't want to end up, as the old saying goes, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And it seems like all these women were successful at managing this. I would say that they were successful at managing this as a result of being quite aware of you know, something that happened in the past, whether it was with their immediate family or in the case of an inheritor where they experienced, you know, some, some pain like everybody else. And I'd be happy to give you an ex example of, of that, Douglas. You know, one woman who I am quite fond of in the book, um, her name is Winona. She if I, when I asked her in the beginning of our interview, you know, what I know of you, you've been able to manage this all so beautifully. And, you know, she, I ended up meeting her live. And I remember her telling me that actually she, you know, quite the opposite, you know, in early days. And she felt that she suffered from the imposter syndrome. Um, she was worried about where she failed. Her husband was several years older than her. He wasn't feeling well, had the foresight that something was wrong. He had gone through a, a very extensive exercise to tap you know, advisors. And Winona was really not interested in that whole process. She kind of half paid attention. And then he died. And she was flummoxed is polite flat-footed is also polite she was utterly devastated and she had moments where she felt like she didn't manage it at all she didn't manage well at all and yet what i really appreciate about her story was she she leaned in which to a person i think when women in this study have um have told of their of, of their brighter moments it's when they, they just sort of accepted what was in front of them and leaned in. And in her case, she literally set out to, you know, know the business language. She did not know anything about finances. She was a creative um, by training. And she read everything from investing to dummies to reading Carl Schwab's, 
you know, 101 book mm-hmm. um, became extremely well read um, to the point where she was able to evaluate someone who was a bad advisor and was able to find the courage to, to let him go and reject, you know, her husband's, her ex, her, her late husband's advisor. And so hers is a story where managing, you know, it ebbed and flowed and success was really, um, you know, quite unique. And really every story like this had aspects of, of where it went well and where it did not go so well. I was moved by story nine, a path from old money. Carrie, who's in the story, didn't want anybody to know of her wealth. It, yeah. she, said it, she said it made her different and she wanted to be recognized for her own abilities. Yeah. She wanted to be a normal person is what she said. Mm-hmm. How common is this in this group? Yeah, I think in the in the inheritor group, Doug, which Carrie is in the inheritor group. And yeah, hers was one of my favorite stories. You know, in her family, you know, she had a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And particularly for the inheritor, the inheritors, they had to run cross current to family culture that was was um, quite um, embedded and entrenched. And um, in her case, women were brought up to be good dinner partners. One of them said to me, who was um, same generation as Carrie, I was brought up to be a good dinner partner. That's what my father said I I needed to do. And yet um, that did not work for them as they wanted to create their own family culture that was modern in the sign of the times. Um, But that that was quite common carries in her 70s so for those inheritors who were older on the older end of the scale that was very common notion for those who were on the younger end you know there was another favorite story of mine was diane who is in her 50s she has a signer of the declaration of independence in her family and yet um, because of that being in her 50s and not her 70s her ability to really um spot quickly family culture and traditional entrenched family culture um, and work to make it more modern and one in which she felt delighted to raise her daughters in. She figured out how to embrace what she had. And thus it was, it's been a more positive, albeit still difficult experience. But I think a function of that sort of being angry and, and wanting to hide and, and, and feeling like she had to try harder than others. I think that there was some demographic component to that for older inheritors versus younger inheritors, but it really is quite, quite um, common in the inheritor group, principally because as I, one of the big themes for that, that particular cohort is that women were family culture innovators. And I loved talking about that. I loved asking them how they innovated. And it was very creative. It was personal to them. They never had a roadmap. They did not have role models that were inspiring to them. So they were on their own. And so I loved watching them innovate. So what's the role of advisors in all this? It seems like such a daunting task. What I, it's There's so much you can learn in it, but boil it down for me. One of the reasons that I really wanted to do this study was that as an advisor in this space at Pitcairn, 
um, I thought it was incredibly interesting that at our firm, um, my first year there, every piece of new business that came in, a matriarch was a decision maker. And I thought that was incredible. Um, I really wanted to understand why was it that they liked us? And what was it that, that my particular firm was doing that was appealing, appealing to them? And so um, this question of advisors, I asked all 40 women. And I had a wonderful partner in this book named Dennis Jaffe. And um, we, we talked to, to, to the women about their advisors. You know, it kind of split down the middle. I oh, know I take that back. I think those women who uh, appreciated their advisors were those who served as, um, as, as a partner. And that was very meaningful to those. And so when they were happy, it was because they had advisors who were, um, who were really good partners. But most of the women um, found that, that they were discouraged, is probably polite, um, when the advisor really paid most attention to who often paid the, 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 the bill, um, and that was the, often the patriarch. And, um, and so when they've had the opportunity to take over the reins or have control, in other words, they shed the advisor who really, um, with the best of intention, um, often the best of intention. I've been in this advisory space for my entire career. It was never out of disrespect. It was just not, it was out of lack of sort of real awareness and empathy where they, they were not able to, um, number one, help women um, understand their wealth structures. So in all aspects of their wealth structures, the trust, their taxes, their investments, um, you know, what, why were they doing something um, around philanthropy that was really driven by, you know, by, by saving money? And, you know, all of those things were really important for them to understand. They looked for an advisor who would help them do that, number one. Number two, but what was more unique for them and what was a deal breaker was that one, the women wanted the advisors to help empower them, the women, to make their own decisions. They were not looking for an advisor who was going to make decisions for them. So that was a, a, sort of a key for advisors to think about is how to partner with, with women as one who has shed that legacy advisor mindset. And there are another, a, a number of other um, comments I, I can offer to Doug, if you like. Well, we would like, but um, I just wanted to move on to how does this trickle down to women who have less all these, these, the study, these learnings that yeah. Yeah. You know, many thanks for that question. Um, because an unintended consequence of this work, a, a very special one actually for me personally, is that this the engagement 
and the interest in this work has been extraordinary in communities of wealth, you know, primarily for rising gen women. And as they, they now have role models. A lot these women to a person said, I didn't have any role models or the ones I had were really not the model of what I was hoping for for my family. And so um, it's trickled down in the wealth community to be really supportive of young uh, wealth holders. And I have loved seeing older ones and younger ones that are pair and, and be coached. Um, I think additionally, it trickles down again in that wealth community to the, to, to the patriarchs, to the fathers. Um, I gave a speaking engagement a number of weeks back and I had a small, um, I had a 30 person breakout to really talk through what all this research meant to families. And there were three men in the room of the 30 and I thanked them for coming. I asked them what drew them in and you know, with earnest eyes and empathetic eyes and an open heart, they said, I have daughters and I want them to find their voice. Um, so in communities of wealth, it's, it's been an enormous trickle down. I think you know, it's a special question to me personally because I don't think that there's really anything in this body of work that isn't relevant to women who don't have this level of wealth. Um, I don't really care how much money you have. I think we all, have the same hope and dream to flourish as people and to find our voice and figure out what we're all good at. And I don't think we really talk about that that much. One woman who was not in this community of wealth um, was really thoughtful about it and called me up and said, you know, I really wanna thank you because you've helped me really think about what is my voice. And it requires introspection, it requires permission and that was one of the highest compliments um, that, that I received about this work. So whether you're of wealth or uh, of this level or not, um, I think the trickle down is actually quite extraordinary and ends up really being a gift to me um, as a woman walking this great land. When, when you finish a book, I imagine there's great relief, great satisfaction and a great exhale, but it also can be a beginning. So how can you ensure that this book lives on? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking that, Douglas, because, you know, I told you this wasn't about a book. I didn't write, I didn't want to write a book. You know, I love reading. I have tons of books, the power around great books that I own and that, that I think about a lot. Um, are those that inspire to something, to do something different, to find a new place in your soul that breathes, to unlock something that um, is there. You didn't quite know you, it was there, but it was burning somewhere inside. And what has happened are two things as a result of this book um, since it's been written. One is that women, the, women are hearing about this book, which is crazy. And they're asking their friends if, you know, how they can be a participant in the study. 
And so Dennis and I, we are, we are way over 40 now. So we keep talking to these women and, you know, uh, as it just sort of affirms or not, or adds greater insight to, to the content, but it also sort of builds, builds community. And I think that's the second um, way in which I hope this lives on that most of the women in these, in this book have, when I sent them the transcript a few uh, back in the spring and said, surprise, you know, this was just going to be a white paper. And I said, surprise, you know, we've been encouraged to make this a book, you know, um, what do you think? How does it sound? Please read it. Tell me what's on your mind. You know, we had a really strong bond in these interviews, um, especially because of the generosity and the willingness to be vulnerable. And um, what I thought was incredible was that that um, I got this a big green light, big thumbs up. And I had many say, you know, I would love to meet the women in this book. Mm-hmm. And so that's the second thing. We, we're building a community now. We're going to get together next year. Um, and we're going to have conversations, you know, no more presentations. It's really now it's about conversations. Um, and so I think that's the second way I'm really looking forward to this is that, um, you know, this book sowed seeds and now how do we help women of wealth in this case, you know, think about some of these things, how do they, you know, find their voice? How do they create traditions that are meaningful to them, beneficial to their children? And so, you know, we're on tour with, having conversations with these with these women of wealth. So continuing, and, and then actually third, I should say that um, Pitcairn is part of, of a um, network called Wigmore. It's seven family offices around the world. Um, we are one and the other six, the other six family offices is, have said, we wanna do this research with, with non-US women. Um, you know, in Brazil, which is a very different story, and <laughs> Singapore. So um, we'll be uh, continuing to do the research with for, for global families. So um, my great intent is that um, this work lives on um, in those few ways. I'm not suggesting you write another book, but I kept wanting <laughs> more stories. I'm not mm-hmm. saying you, I just listened to an podcast with Anderson Cooper on and he's he just went did the whole Vanderbilt story from the beginning which is just fascinating but maybe longer stories or something I don't know I'm not telling you what to do yeah you know what it's um I was talking to a board member at Pig Karen and we had our year in board meeting and this one board member who's such an extraordinary man he said you know Amy how did you possibly just get those three paragraphs or two paragraphs Exactly. And um, I said to him, you know, each one was transcribed. There were 120 pages, typically, in a, it was often 75 minutes interview. And all the women, you know, had to approve me studying them. I, I, they're in Amy's vault in her head right now. But it, it, as I think about this, I think great learning comes from great storytelling. And so maybe the next book doesn't is just stories and not all sort of the analysis that I would do, Douglas. Yeah. I don't know if yes. I'd sign up for another one where I had to do all this synthesis, but you know, I now have stories. now I've just decided, you know, when I have more and more my more bold personal moments, I start listing, you know, who I would really like to hear from. Yes. I, 
And yeah. I have that list going in my head. So I'll get back to you if I'm successful. But, um, you know, there were many, many women in this, their names we would know in, in this, but um, they've really inspired me to carry on. So I'll get back to you on that one. Yeah. On our earlier call, I asked for names and locations and companies and you gave me none of that. So no, 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 no. Actually, one one of the women said, um, you know, Amy, we have entrusted you with our trove of treasures. <laughs> and I said, you bet. And so, yep, it, it does. But um, loose lips. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you, Douglas, and many thanks to Advisorpedia for being interested in this. And it really was inspired the work to help us advisors who work with these women. Where can people find it? People can find this book on Amazon. If you just Google my name, it pops up. It comes in less than a day. And I, um, it's a fast, quick, easy read. It's not a big, thick. Kindly check it out. Great. To learn more about Amy's family office, please visit pitcarin.com, P-I-T-C-A-R-I-N.com. Please follow us for all the latest updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. <laughs>